Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is the good shepherd. Lord, he is the sacrificial shepherd. Lord, he is the shepherd who gives his life, who dies and who rises from the dead. But Lord, we know he's the shepherd who cares for us every day. And in that care, there is controversy. Because we know that there are going to be people who don't love you and who don't love the shepherd. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness and courage to tell the truth and to do it in love and to do it every day. Again, Father, we commit this time to you. And, Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would walk tenderly with the shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. And he doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus began the chapter with a metaphor, and now he reveals the meaning of the metaphor. Jesus is the door, the entryway, if you will, into the sheepfold, the place of safety, the place of security. The place of salvation. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus describes his relationship both with the sheep and with his father. He is the entrance to salvation in verse 7. He allows them access to the green pasture, the super abundant life that we talked about in verses 9 and 10. And now he reveals the fact that the good shepherd is a sacrificial shepherd. For Jesus, his ministry will be marked by concern for the sheep, but also controversy created by those who oppose him. Four times in this passage, Jesus will state that he will lay down his life for the sheep in verse 11. The last part of verse 15 I lay down my life for the sheep. And again, in the last part of verse 17, I lay down my life only to take it up again. And in verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to pick it up. Many of you who are familiar with John chapter 10 borrow images either from popular culture or from religious history. You might have pictured Jesus as the good shepherd. You see him with the sheep safely on his shoulders, carried in his bosom. You see the peaceful pastoral scenes guiding and guarding the sheep. But John chapter 10 presents a much more dramatic picture, a much more gruesome picture. You see the sheep 
are safe because the shepherd fights. Someone should draw a picture of Jesus engaging a bear, engaging a lion. Someone needs to draw a picture with a wolf with its head smashed, a bear with its skull crushed. Do you know why he's the good shepherd? Because he protects the sheep and is willing to engage in order to protect the sheep. Make no mistake about it. This is part of the point of the passage. Jesus paints a picture of stark contrast. The good shepherd and the bad shepherd. The faithful and the unfaithful. The selfless and the selfish. Jesus demands that the shepherd be responsible for the sheep. In the Old Testament there was a shepherd turned prophet. His name was Amos. And in Amos chapter 3 verse 12 he says, Thus says the Lord as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. You may not understand that passage, but the Lord is explaining to Amos the collapse of the northern empire and the fact that a whole population of people in rebellion and disobedience who wouldn't allow themselves to be guided and guarded by the shepherd have placed themselves at risk. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 13, it says, If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good what was torn. In other words... In the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, shepherds had a responsibility to the sheep. Despite their best efforts, some of them were taken. Some of them were stolen. Some of them were hurt. The common law speaks of those with a fiduciary responsibility. That means they're placed in a responsibility of authority and care. And they're to care for what isn't necessarily theirs. In Exodus, the shepherd had to bring home proof that the sheep had died when it was eaten by predators. And that he was unable to prevent its death. David relates the story to Saul of how he fought a lion and how he fought a bear. As a matter of fact, Isaiah speaks of a group of shepherds who are called out in Isaiah chapter 31 to deal with a lion to the shepherd. It is second nature to risk his own life for the sheep. It becomes one of the defining qualities of courage and sacrifice. And we live in a world where brave firemen, police officers, and emergency workers risk their lives every day for complete strangers. Do you realize that you'll never understand that life is worth living until you find something worth dying for? Is there anything at all that you care about? Do you care about the Lord and His church? Do you care about your family? Do you care about your nation? Dedicated treasury agents, secret service agents, FBI agents risk personal injury and death to protect candidates that they would never vote for. It isn't their love of the candidate. It's their love of the Constitution. And their love of life and their love of a dream. And part of that dream is living in a world of peace and freedom. And sometimes the shepherd has to do more than simply risk life. The shepherd must actually lay it down when thieves and robbers come and they attempt to seize the the flock. There is an old, old book on my bookshelf called The Land and the Book by Dr. W.N. Thompson. He was a famous traveler and Bible writer at, at the end of the late 1700s and early 1800s. And there's a passage of his visit to Israel early on. And he writes, I have listened with intense interest to their graphic descriptions of downright and desperate fights with savage beasts, talking about bears and lions and wolves. And when the thief and the robber come and come, they do. The faithful shepherd has often to put his life in his hand and defend his flock. 
I've known more than one case where he had to literally lay it down in the contest. A poor, faithful fellow last spring between Tiberius and Tabor, instead of fleeing, actually fought three Bedouin robbers until he was hacked to pieces with their Kanjars. A kanjar is, a, is a, a small curved knife that was carried in the Middle East by Bedouins. It's sharpened on both sides and made of Damascus steel and he was hacked to pieces. He says he died among the sheep that he was defending. That's the picture. A shepherd who risks everything. And you see, this is the part that sometimes, for whatever reason, you don't get. You're in danger. Sin has placed you in danger. Sin has placed you in danger. And because sin has placed you in danger, the good shepherd is willing to confront your sin and the consequences of your sin. The good shepherd will do what is necessary in order to protect you and to preserve you. And now we see the claim, I am the good shepherd. Look at verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Here the original language is, Arresting. In the original Greek form, in a single sentence, Jesus says, I am the shepherd, the good. I think that that's interesting. The Bible's filled with shepherds. Abel, the righteous shepherd. Jacob, the resourceful shepherd. Moses, the returning shepherd. David, the royal shepherd. Amos, shepherd turned prophet. Shepherds attend the birth of Jesus. And there are two words, by the way, for good in the original language. In the Greek language, one is agathos, which speaks of moral virtue. It's a kind of goodness. Agathos is the moral quality of a person or a thing. And the other word is kalos which carries with it not just simply the idea of goodness, but it is a goodness that is coupled with winsomeness and beauty. It's someone or something that's lovely. Kalos was a word that you would use to describe a baby when you held them in their arms. And have you ever seen a baby that wasn't a beautiful baby? Oh, yeah, you have. You go, yeah. But you don't say anything, do you? Even though the baby's head is three times the size of, of its body. Even though when it's got a birthday coming up and you say, hey, let's all chip in and buy this baby some eyebrows. But here's the deal. It's a word that speaks of something that is absolutely in and of itself beautiful to behold. When Jesus is described as the good shepherd, again, the word is kalos. Jesus isn't good in, in just simply an efficient way or a faithful way. He's good in a lovely way. Most of you are way too young to remember a time when doctors had practices, home practices in their own home. And they lived in towns and villages and Remember, in ancient times, they were called the good doctor because the good doctor would come to your home and minister to you and provide for you. The doctor wasn't just simply a person who was professionally competent. He was a person personally interested in your well-being. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, that's what that means. Charles Spurgeon comments, there is more in Jesus, the good shepherd, than you can pack away in a shepherd. He is the good, the great, the chief shepherd, but he's so much more. Emblems to set him forth may be multiplied like the drops of the morning, but the whole multitude will fail to reflect his brightness. Creation is too small a frame in which to hang his likeness. Human thought too contracted, human speech too feeble to set him forth to the full. He is inconceivably above our conceptions, unutterably above our utterances. Isn't that good? He's that and more. 
And then the contrast comes. Look what Jesus says in verse 12. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The true shepherd risks everything. The hireling refuses risk. And that's the contrast. And you know who the hireling is in the passage. In this allegory, the hireling are the religious leaders. These are the made-for-money religious leaders who are in the ministry for power. They're in the ministry for money. They're in the ministry for what they can get out of it. And it's the first sign when the sheep are in danger, when the church is at risk, they make a run for it because guess what? They're not interested in the bite marks of the wolf. They're not interested in the crushing presence of the lion or the bear. They're not interested in the knife or the bullet that's provided by the thief or the robber. The hireling does everything to preserve his own life, his own safety. He's in it for the money. The hireling wants to make sure his benefit package is in keeping with his advanced degrees, his seminary training, the books that he's published, the years that he served. Now don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to pay your pastor. You laugh, but guess what? When we started our church with just my wife and my three children and a handful of other people, and that handful of people grew to 35 people and from 35 to 50 people and from 50 to 150 people took three years and during those three years I had at least three or four jobs at any given time. I was never in it for the money. By the way, the whole world will be different on Tuesday. I don't know what kind of a world it will be, but it will be different. In the first service, there were several ladies who came up to me and said, our store is closing at the end of February. We're losing our job. Many of you are going to be experiencing some difficult times. And for some of you, it might be the most difficult times that you've ever experienced. But guess what? The Lord willing, no matter what happens in our future, no matter what happens in our circumstances, I'm going to be here. Guess what? I could actually get another job. I'm, if I wanted to make a whole boatload of money, it wouldn't be by being the pastor of this church. A hireling who is not the shepherd doesn't own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. That is a poetic way of saying that he viciously assaults and savages the sheep. And guess what? The hireling works for money. But the good shepherd is motivated by love. The good shepherd is concerned for the sheep. Now listen carefully because what I'm about to say, you have to get this. A shepherd should love the truth. And a shepherd should love the sheep. If you love the truth, you will love the sheep. And if you love the sheep, you will love the truth. And if you love the truth, you will love the sheep. And if you love the sheep, you will love the truth. In the allegory, remember, the religious leaders do not love them. And they do not love the truth. They have been confronted by the truth and rejected the truth and the church is in constant danger threats on the outside diseased and bad leadership on the inside the threat on the outside coming from robbers and wolves and predators who love something for nothing and that becomes the very definition of a robber doesn't it it's someone who doesn't love the truth and who is willing to get something for nothing. And by the way, the danger is on the outside and the danger is on the inside. And the false shepherd, the wicked shepherd, 
aren't those who are simply guilty of bad leadership, but bad character. I'm going to ask you a question. Think about it for just a moment. What do you think is more dangerous? The predators on the outside attacking the church or the false shepherd, the wicked shepherd on the inside? What do you think? Outside? Inside. I'm going to suggest to you that both are dangerous. But the shepherd, the false shepherd, the selfish shepherd is clearly the most dangerous. Because the sheep have a strong defense when the shepherd is good. The the sheep have a strong defense when the shepherd is not self-centered and evil and corrupt. When the shepherd is good, when the shepherd is faithful, there's a built-in mechanism. What is the best mechanism for the safety of a child? good parents, huh? What's the best mechanism for the safety of a country? It's got to be just and moral leadership. It's got to be just and moral leadership. There are three things that we must always affirm. Justice, goodness, and we must defend life. You know, there are three things that I will gladly, cheerfully, hopefully, wonderfully, submissively die for. I will die for the Lord and His church. I will die for my family. And I will die for my nation. You know why I'm willing to die for the Lord? Why I'm willing to die for my family? Why I'm willing to die for this nation? Because each and every one of them are worth living for. Each and every one is worth investing. Each and every one we should care about. Can we overestimate the value of good and godly leadership? I don't think so. And leadership must be based on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be an example that's that, that is rooted and grounded in selflessness rather than selfishness. Earlier, Jesus spoke of false shepherds, and, and now he speaks of the fearful shepherd. Look in verse 13. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. He doesn't care about the sheep. The fearful shepherd is a hireling. He's a hired hand. He doesn't have concern. He has no investment in the, in the sheep. The hired hand cares about his job or his position. The hired hand thinks about his compensation rather than compassion. The hired hand thinks not so much of biblical comprehension and spiritual commitment, but how he can coerce the flock into following his leadership. And so the proof, the knowledge of the sheep comes not just with care, but with love. There's intimacy. Look at verse 14. It says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. You know what Jesus is saying? That he loves his own. The word know, by the way, is a very specific word also in the original language. And it's a word that speaks of intimacy. It is a word that just doesn't simply communicate cerebral expectation. I know them. I know about them. But it's a word that was used to describe a level of intimacy that was only reserved for husbands and wives. And it would be creepy if it weren't Jesus speaking. Because in Amos chapter 3, remember what I told you, the shepherd turned prophet, he communicates with the voice of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says concerning the Lord God, you, he says, the Lord God in Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, he says in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, using the same word known. God certainly was aware of the planet Earth. He was aware of all the countries and civilizations on the planet Earth. So what does he mean when he says, you only have I known of all the families in the Earth? He's talking about a level of personal and intimate relationship that was granted to a covenant people by God. That's what Jesus is talking about. A 
level of commitment, concern, and covenant. He loves you. And here's the simple truth. Jesus loves his sheep. Jesus, in love, knows who belongs to him. They, in love, know Him. The Father, in love, knows Jesus. And He, in love, knows the Father. Believers are caught up in this deep and intimate affection that is shared by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're caught up in that intimate affection, it isn't just simply a knowledge of that which is intellectually right and that which is doctrinally true, but it is a truth rooted and connected to love. It's one thing for you to know who your father is. It's another thing to know who your mother is. And it's another thing to know that they love you. And in John chapter 10, verse 15, it says, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. You'll note, the good shepherd loves his sheep. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, speaking once again of intimacy and proximity. And now we learn that the good shepherd not only loves his sheep and is loved by his sheep, but now the good shepherd is also willing to connect the sheep. There is care and there is concern and there is covenant, but now there is a connection. There's a meeting that takes place between the sheep. As a matter of fact, in verse 16, Jesus says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. In the King James Version, fold is repeated. It says, I have which are not of this fold, and there will be one fold. But guess what? The New King James correctly translates the passage when it says there will be one flock because there are two different Greek words that are used. The first one for fold is alle. It means a sheep pen, the place where the sheep are stored. The second is poimne. It means the flock. Ralph Earl points out, is this distinction important? Well, it is. Because the point that Jesus is making is that there aren't multiple flocks and multiple folds, but each one unites under the banner of the, of, of the leadership of Jesus Christ. Certain churches insist that they're the only true church. The LDS Mormons have interpreted this verse to mean that there were a group of people in the Middle East and that there were a group of people in North and South America. And that Jesus came for the sheep in the Middle East. And then Jesus supernaturally appears and creates yet a new covenant. Another testament. The Book of Mormon. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is absolutely false. The Roman Catholic Church has insisted that this means that the Roman Catholic Church is the one holy, true, and apostolic church. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear. This isn't about Catholics and non-Catholics. This isn't about Mormons and non-Mormons. Jesus makes it abundantly clear from the context that Jesus is referring to a group of Jewish people and a group of Gentile people. You've got to remember, Jesus in John chapter 10 is speaking to a group of religious leaders who by and large hate Gentiles. Do you know what a a normal Jew thought of a Gentile? Why God made the Gentiles? Because someone needed to buy retail. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what it means. Now watch, that's what's going to stick in your mind. Gentiles buy retail. No, this is actually not what it means. Here is what it means. In the religious world in which Jesus grew up in, There was a deep prejudice and a deep animosity. 
Jesus wanted the disciples and the religious leaders to know that a day would come when both Jew and Gentile would receive Jesus as the one and true shepherd. But many had the attitude that the nations were designed at best to be slaves and at worst for judgment. It would not have been unusual for a Jewish person to hold the view the Gentiles were simply created to be kindling fire in hell. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do you want to know why? Isaiah the prophet hints at it when he writes that Israel would be given as a light to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, Isaiah 49, 6, Isaiah 56, 8, there have always been lonely voices that have cried out that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph doesn't simply belong to the Jew, but he is the good shepherd to the world and to the nations. And that was the hope, and that was the idea. And at first blush, the New Testament seems to give us a mixed message. Jesus says to his own disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You'll remember the story of the poor Syrophoenician woman who appeals to Jesus for help, to help her daughter. And you'll remember Jesus' response, we don't give the bread that belongs to the children to the dogs. And you'll remember the woman's response? Lord, even the dogs receive the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What a powerful statement. It was always God's idea. It was always Jesus' idea to save both Jew and Gentile. And this is why the New Testament records that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but we're united in Christ. Later, Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples of all the nations, commanding them to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why the New Testament begins with ministry to the Jew and continues with ministry to the Gentile. God has a plan. Every commander knows that in battle, in order to win the war, you have to take your targets strategically and you have to keep the end game in mind. And the ultimate aim of Jesus is for all men to come to him. He will be the one shepherd of the one flock. True unity, organic unity, exists between Jew and Gentile who love and serve and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we are sheep, we belong to and are led by the same shepherd. And you know what's interesting? Look again in verse 16. And other sheep I have. Did you know that you were in the Bible? That's you. Chapter 10, verse 16. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Unless, of course, you were born, raised, educated Jewish. But the vast majority of the people listening to my voice are Gentiles. You are the other flock. You are the other sheep. If you have entered into a relationship with God and Jesus, if you've come to know Him, if you've come to believe Him, if you believe that He is the shepherd who is good, the shepherd who saves, the shepherd who sacrificially gives His life for you, your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, which was inscribed before the foundation of the world. He is your gate and He is your shepherd. That's what that means. So if anybody asks, if you're in the Bible, you go, yeah, I'm right here in John chapter 10, verse 16. That's me. And he gives further proof, a sacrificial death and a supernatural resurrection. Look at verse 17. Therefore, my father loves me. 
because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command, and underline that word, this not suggestion, not endorsement, this command I have received from my Father, it's going to become important to you. The reason why it's going to become important to you is this. Love, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is never divorced from obedience. The Father loves me. Look what it says. Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. My Father loves me. And look what it says. Because I obey Him. The Bible doesn't divorce love and obedience. You might. You might think, well, can't I love God? And can't I love the Bible? And can't I love the sayings of God? And can't I love the things of God? And not necessarily obey Him? No. In the New Testament, Jesus said these words. Listen carefully. If you love me, you will... Yes! This isn't Gino giving you some legalistic trip. This is Jesus reminding you that real love leads to real obedience. And real obedience leads to real love. And the gospel is filled with supernatural attestations of the claims of Jesus. The Father loves the Son. It means that Jesus will live his life in obedience to the Father. And it clearly means in this context that loving the Father and loving the Son and obeying the Father will result in death. Jesus is God. And Jesus is rightly called the Son of God. But he remains loyal and obedient to what his father desires. The will of the father. Sonship for Jesus means obedience to the father. Sonship for us means obedience both to the father and to the son. And now Jesus presents the twin claims of his sacrificial death and his supernatural resurrection. The two pillars of our Christian life and our Christian faith. Look what it says again at the end of verse 18. This command I have received from my Father. Listen carefully. The command to allow obedience to take its course. The command to allow death to take its course. The command that He would be raised from the dead. That's part of the point. The manner of Jesus' death. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead establishes identity beyond any successful contradiction. Josh McDowell, I remember early on when I was a kid, he was once asked the question, Why are you a Christian? And I may be paraphrasing his, his answer, but it went something like this. The reason why I'm a Christian is simple. I can't explain away Jesus. I can't explain away his life and his death and his resurrection. I can't pretend like it never happened. And Jesus makes that amazing statement. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. Chuck Swindoll writes, and I quote, the story of the Good Shepherd is not the tragic story of a victim, but the tremendous story of a victor who has secured his victory by voluntarily laying his life down on our behalf. Pilate tried to intimidate Jesus with the authority to release him or crucify him in John 19.10. Peter tried to protect him with a sword at Gethsemane, Matthew 26.51, John 18.10. Jesus' death was voluntary. He told Peter, put your sword back in its place. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will 
at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Matthew 26:52. And remember in the Bible, in the Old Testament, one angel dispatched 186,000 Syrian soldiers in a single night. Can you imagine what 12,000 or 12 legions? A legion, by the way, was about 6,000 soldiers. Do the math. Pilate said, you would have... And and to Pilate, Jesus replied, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it was given to you from above. John 19.11 No, Jesus didn't become entrapped in some sticky political web from which he couldn't extricate himself. Rather, he spun a story of selfless sacrifice so enticing, so enchanting that it would attract people for two thousand years. A story stirred us like nothing else. The story of a shepherd so supremely good that nothing stood in the way of his love for his sheep, not even his own life. Isn't that good? Nothing stood in his way. Jesus sees his sacrificial death and his ultimate glory in a united fashion. No cross. No glory. William Barclay writes, He never doubted that he would die. He also never doubted that he would rise again. The reason was his confidence in God. He was sure that God would never abandon him. All life is based on the fact that anything worth getting is hard to get. There's always a price to be paid. Scholarship can be bought only at the price of study. Skill in any craft or technique can be bought at the price of practice. Eminence in any sport can be bought only at the price of training and discipline. The world is full of people who have missed their destiny because they wouldn't pay the price. What is it that's worth living for? What is it that's worth dying for? Over and over again, Jesus makes it clear that his death is a death that is in obedience to to the Father. His death is voluntary. When I was preparing this message, I was reading the story of a young French soldier who was seriously wounded when he was shot in the arm. Now, I don't typically like to promote the French. But this story is worth talking about. By the way, depending on how the elections turn out on Tuesday, if Barack Obama is elected, just pretend like you live in France, only we all speak English. And it'll be fine. And if John McCain is elected, still pretend like it's France. In the story that I read, the young French soldier's arm was so badly smashed that it had to be amputated. And the soldier was young and handsome and strong. And it grieved the surgeon to tell the young man what had happened. And when he regained consciousness, the surgeon said to him, I am so sorry to tell you that you have lost your arm. And the young lad said, Sir, I did not lose it. I gave it for France. That is so good. I didn't lose it. I gave it for France. Jesus didn't lose his life. He gave it. He gave it. He gave it for you. He could have turned back at any time. The cross wasn't an afterthought. He embraced it. And Jesus basically says this. He did it because he cares. He did it because he's concerned. He did it because he loves you. And I want to remind you of something. 
The fact that Jesus died on the cross is wonderful. It provides the mechanism for your salvation. The fact that he rose from the dead proves his identity. But make no mistake about it. If for whatever reason you've forgotten, Jesus woke up every morning in love with his Father and obedient to his Father. He was in love with his Father and obedient to his Father because he was in love with you. He woke up every morning in love with his Father, obedient to his Father, because he was in love with you. Have you fooled yourself into thinking that it's possible to love the Lord and leave to leave obedience behind? It's a false theology. It's a false promise. And it won't result in connection, but disconnection. And you look how it ends. Therefore, there was a division among the Jews because of these saying. And many of them said, he has a demon. He's mad. Why would you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? How did the religious leaders and the people react? This is crazy talk. Jesus, this is crazy. You're talking like a crazy person. We need to invent antipsychotic medication and give it to you right away. There were people there who felt strongly that soon Jesus' head would start spinning and spinning split pea soup. Why are you listening to this nonsense? And remember, there's a reason why they believe he's demonically possessed. Because they can't explain the miracles. And you know what? Some defamed Jesus, and some defended Jesus, just like today. Some people defame Jesus, and some people defend Jesus. And we live in a culture and a society where being a Christian means you become open to every kind of wicked accusation. Long before C.S. Lewis made his famous remark about lunatic and lord and liar, observant people came to the right conclusion. Jesus doesn't sound like an idiot. He doesn't sound like a liar. He doesn't sound like a lunatic. He doesn't sound like a person who's demonically possessed. He is a person who saves in verse 9. He's a person who secures in verse 10. He's a, a person who satisfies in verse 10. He is a person who sacrifices in verse 11 and in verse 15 and in verse 17 and in verse 18. And in that sacrifice, he will wake up every morning. And every morning he will obey his father. Because he loves him. And every morning, he will obey his father and sacrifice himself because he loves you. Maybe you've grown cold. Maybe you've become disconnected from the cross, from Calvary. Maybe you've disconnected because you're so interested in having a right theology and I don't trust me I want you to have a right theology but I want you to have a right relationship Thomas Aquinas wrote there is within every soul a thirst for happiness and for meaning and if you're thirsty and if you're unhappy and if you're living a meaningless life, then maybe it's time for you to think about Jesus again. You will never, never understand that something is worth living for until you're also willing to admit it's worth dying for. And then you proceed to live your life as if that's true. 
Let's stand. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a good shepherd. Kalos. Good. Winsome. Lovely. Wonderful to be with. Great to have. Lord, there's something beautiful about Jesus. There's something glorious about Jesus. He isn't willing to just simply tell us what's right. He's not simply willing to dictate to us doctrine. But He enters into our life and He enters into our circumstances and He's willing to sacrificially lay it all down in order to accomplish the ultimate goal. To save you. To preserve you. To protect us, Lord, from the enemy. And Lord, I know that there are people who are living lives of deep depression deep alienation, deep estrangement. They know the right things, but their life is empty. Lord, I pray, I pray, if ever there was a time to pray a prayer, Lord, that I pray that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to You, that they would experience light and love, holiness and truth, and that they would once again walk with the shepherd. Be led by the shepherd. Allow the shepherd to comfort and nurture and strengthen, to guide and to guard. And Lord, for that person who is here, who's grown cold and estranged from you, Lord, I pray that you would reawaken within their heart a love for you, a commitment to you. And if that's you and you need to get right with God and you're not, I'm going to invite you to come up. We're going to play this song. I'm going to invite you to come up. You need to renew your commitment to Christ. You need to give your heart to Jesus. Don't leave here full-headed and empty-hearted. Don't do it. Make sure. Make sure you have a right relationship with God. Make sure you've confessed your sin. Make sure you've reconnected with the living Lord of heaven. I'm going to invite you to do that now while we sing this song. There'll be men and women available to, to talk with you and to pray with you. Just come on down and then I'm going to be dismissing you guys. Go ahead. Jesus.